uh, with this evening's talk, we'll be exploring the meaning, the practice, and the relationship of metta to the whole of our practice and to the whole of our life. A number of suttas will be included in the talk this evening and and some stories will also be included in our exploration. And beginning uh, with some words from the Buddha. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices offered by the Buddha, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. And this evening we'll consider one important uh, uh, teaching and practice of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahma Vihara, a divine abiding as it's translated into English. The radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of an open-hearted connection, an open-hearted connection that isn't fraught with any clinging or any attachment, and not even necessarily with a sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of the mind and the heart, it arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layers of conditioning that shuts us down to others. And it's also very important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when the focus of mindful attention is able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experiences with a clarity and with kindness. So beginning with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particularly, <clears throat> particular, seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat. The forest was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who had offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during their rains retreat. And they also offered, uh, were very happy, in fact, to offer the monks, uh, offered to fill their alms bowls during their three-month practice period. And so the monks moved in, and they began practicing insight meditation. They began practicing vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest devas who lived uh, there in this particular forest, became fearful that the monks, uh, in fact, uh, weren't just going to be staying there for a few days, they realized. And so they began to feel quite fearful about this and began to feel quite put out of their home, what they considered their forest. And so they began to create all kinds of, of frightening sounds and frightening sights and to emit some very, very distasteful odors, hoping that this would make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks did become quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, which broke their concentration, and disrupted their mindfulness. 
Some of them even developed fever and pain, dizziness in conjunction with the degree of fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying, and they related their tale to him. To which the Buddha responded, My beloved monks, he said, go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest again, telling him that it was just impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response was this. He said, Dear monks, because you went to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I'll give you a really true weapon of protection. And it's said it was at that point that the Buddha offered the metta teachings and practice. Out of great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta teachings and practice, they went back to that same forest. And for a while, they continued experiencing feelings of fear and anxiety, while at the same time, they very diligently and virtuously practiced metta. Soon, there were no more frightful sights or sounds. And whereas the devas uh, had been previously hostile towards the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the devas' experiences, along with a sense of being quite connected, like with family. And the inclination then arose for them to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from the particular dangers, such as tigers and poisonous snakes, that might be lurking in the forest. So they felt that they wanted to protect the monks from these dangers, so that the monks could continue practicing very peacefully, practicing their meditation peacefully. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and their open-hearted presence through practicing metta, it's said that all 500 monks at some point began to practice samta and vipassana meditation again, with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because of this, They were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully. And it's said that all of them, every one of them, became arhats, became fully enlightened beings during that particular rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called this the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings a connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice and throughout the whole of our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural, heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, towards another particular person, or towards a group of beings, wishing oneself and others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be peaceful. 
in the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our, our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale. They're, of course, they're important on one level. But within this incredible radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants, our personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of the unconditional human kindness of metta, it's like the sunshine. It's like the sunshine, that warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving-kindness is akin to the sunshine warming our heart, warming our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does this capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness. Where does it come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness, the experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very, very rare. Every single one of us sitting in this room right now has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth, given to us freely. So, an example, a very simple, very ordinary experience. A few days before I left uh, Taos, New Mexico, where I live, to come to the forest refuge, to come to IMS, uh, I walked into the post office in my little town of Taos, and this happens to me actually quite often. I walked in to pick up my mail, and someone opened the door for me and held the door open for me as I was coming close to the door. I didn't know the person. I'd never seen them before. We looked at each other, and we smiled at each other. And I thanked her, and I felt a warm connection between us. So, just that, just that, that's unconditional kindness. That's metta, in a very simple way. And each one of us, of course, have experienced kindness with people that we know, with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness expressed in a more overt or a much stronger way that unconditional warmth of loving-kindness. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us. These are the seeds that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and that we fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. 
It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it, we cultivate it, and we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and very beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give. It's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. Unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice, a very natural choice that others make, that we make, and it has an effect. It has an effect on us, and it has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of the heart spring from, the other three divine abidings, compassion, karuna in Pali, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita in Pali, and equanimity, upeka in Pali. It's also the capacity of heart, the capacity of mind that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold, to unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience, with each of these qualities really being an essential ground for us throughout the whole of our practice and throughout the process of liberation. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. The bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty, Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the texts, it's often spoke of as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. So no aversion in any direction, meaning no comparing ourselves in relationship to others, No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others, 
the absence of ill will in all directions. Not so easy. (laughs) For instance, here in retreat, how often might we think maybe that the person sitting next to us or someone sitting on the other side of the room, how often might we think that their practice is so much better than ours, than mine? Or maybe the comparing mind says, well, that person isn't really practicing nearly as well as I am. The felt judgment, the inner felt judgment, maybe that they're better than me, or I'm no good, or I'm great. No sleepiness, no movement. Just look at that person over there, nodding away, restless, moving all around. Well, obviously this isn't metta. We're actually creating a separation. Me, other. And the heart, the mind, is contracted in this. And it's uncomfortable. And so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this, too, is part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, one way to attend to the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta and also to offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so for some of you, is that metta is impersonal in nature even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we're identified with and attached to in either a positive or in a critical way, as our self, our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart, a mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not only those that we're close to in our lives, or those that it's easy to care about, or those who maybe might be useful or maybe amusing or pleasing to us. A heart, a mind filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect, this capacity of being able to care for any being, all beings. And some words from a Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair, but when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The heart, the mind of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It just allows things to be as they are with an inner sense of well-being, patience, and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously in the mind, in the heart. 
as each of you are practicing here in the very specific ways that you are, practicing towards cultivating a constant, concentrated clarity of attention, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness. Some of you are also practicing with metta, concerted, doing concerted metta practice in relationship to purifying the heart and the mind. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and the mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation and connection, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind and the heart and the body begin to unwind. They begin to weaken, to fade, and even eventually dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta. The strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who taught uh, through dialogue with his students, someone once asked him, what can make me love? And Nisargadatta's response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and quite important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with, or connect with beings who act maybe in ways that we might not like or even might not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. And there aren't any favorites, no favoring one over another with metta. Consequently, it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and most powerful energy in the universe. And so from this, we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting on this for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, the world would have flown apart, the world would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history, up to and including this very moment, when there's been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been or is increasingly unsettled. More violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Mitzger says this, there are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love, she says.
And of course, the Buddha said it quite perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus that our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never, ever know. I'd like to spend uh, a few moments now exploring some of the expectations of what uh, we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some familiar felt sense. And of course, our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect, it's impossible to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced, or to look for something that maybe we have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can actually get caught, we can get stuck in expecting this. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The mind, the heart, that's free of ill will, that's free from greed, fear, hatred, and anger in any given moment is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. And it's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of or are familiar with as love. There's really a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others, to connect directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart, free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And, as I've already said, and as many of you know, it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, seen through, and let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are really essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a very beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar, that demonstrates this very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, and he was foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. The story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. And the monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. 
And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed Bodhan was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave for a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. And the venerable Sariputta then rose from his seat bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. And then two of the Buddha's other chief disciples, the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing down to him sat sat on one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. And the Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Rahula was the Buddha's son, in case some of you don't know. I remember the discourse that you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. Yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, and yet for all that the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry, I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire, Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk, 
and go on without an apologizing, without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta c- continued to deliver his lion's roar. And at one point, the accusing monk arose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta wrongly, falsely and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the the future practices restraint. And then the Buddha turned to the venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. See, the Buddha did have a sense of humor. <laughs> and then Sariputta responded, and he said, I shall forgive him if this revered monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he, too, forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines, a really very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the very smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and put it in my mouth with a big, huge smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. Some years ago, I read a book about and by a 102-year-old African-American man whose name was George Dawson. 
He grew up in his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school, and he never learned how to read until the age of 98, when he decided to attend a literacy program. He learned how to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. It's really an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. And I'd like to uh, share a little bit of this book with you. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who, at the age of 101, was still living alone, and as George says, and doing just fine. And this is their conversation. Richard, speaking, you're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do so because they want to. I have nothing to give them. But they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't really take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can just take time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, At least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. So the cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. As an example of the stability and beauty of a heart, a mind, steeped in kind-heartedness. I'd like to continue on a little bit with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually, this book begins when George was eight years old, as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who had been one of his heroes. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking now. She didn't see me from the shadow of a tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in in a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. 
dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could go, could believe what she wanted, but I wasn't an animal, and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch that I left out on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. And as I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed from meanness and anger, changed to meanness and anger, from her mother and father and back through her grandparents. I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up, I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited, and finally in a cold tone she said, you don't need to come back anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. And George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. And it's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of ourself. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And again, it's not so easy at times, but it's very, very well worth it. There's really a tremendous fullness of energy, which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from this heart of metta. And in closing the talk this evening, I'd like to share one more story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. This comes from a book called On the Res. Sue Ann was born on March 15, 1974, on the Pine Ridge Reservation, and she grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wanderings and later on cruising around in cars were completely out. So Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun. 
because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the very small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on a New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was, and she gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did them all, cross-country, running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, and basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. So she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of her patio, of the patio, and her mother and her sisters got very, very tired of the sound. So for variety, she would shoot layup shots against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in the cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and the fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted. Their fans will feel unwelcome. The host gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees will call fouls on Indian players every single chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was in the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to, went to Leed to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman. 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. After, the home te- after that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Danny DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading from the locking- locker room, the heckling got louder and louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. I won't. 
I won't embarrass you, said Sue Ann. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped as she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. And then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulder, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance that she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy, all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. She began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff, the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. And in the sudden quiet, All they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. And she sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air and laid the ball right through the hoop, with the fans cheering loudly. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Leed. And I agree. That was Sue Ann's Lion's Roar. And a small poem from Hafiz called The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. And the Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power behind his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation and do what seems to come naturally. And then, after the fact, realize that you handled the situation very differently from the way that you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, you do what seems perfectly natural. And you might say, it's really no big deal to a friend who asks you how you were able to stay present and do 
what needed to be done. But it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities of the heart, these qualities of the mind, change your life and change the lives of everyone that you encounter. I'd like to close the talk with, I think, the favorite poet of many Dhamma teachers, Mary Oliver. This is a portion of a poem of hers. Uh, The poem is called uh, To Begin With the Sweet Grass. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then I have gone out for my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean, the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or other. I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all that I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.